This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. I just want to start off and say, wow. I don't know when this episode is going to go out, but eventually you guys will hear it. Energy Tech Night last night was absolutely crazy. It looked like a club. It did look like a club. <laughs> it looked like a club. The only problem <laughs> that we had was that the venue was not big enough. We didn't have enough bartenders. Uh, I mean, it was the line was literally around Which, the block to get in. I saw pictures of people out in the line going down the block. It's like, what oil and gas event has ever had a line going down the block? <laughs> to Never. Get in? Not even Nape. <laughs> It was absolutely mind blowing. So, if you guys weren't there, we had um, we had some presentation. We got obviously we got Josh Adler here with us right now. Um, look, super looking forward to this episode. It's good to catch up. But we Josh presented last night. Uh, we had data creation. We had digital oil and gas solutions. We had HiveCell, all kind of showing their technologies. If you guys never been to Energy Tech Night before, you're missing out. And last night was definitely the biggest and the baddest so far. Then we had a panel on how oil and gas tech is going to play in an energy transition. Moderated by by Scott Gale, we had uh, Diana Grauer from Technique FMC on there, John Calfan from Hive Cell, and then uh, John Bledsoe from uh, Confluent. Confluent. So, really, really good time. We also announced the uh, Digital Walkheaders app. You want to yeah. talk about that for a second? Yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, let's not talk about it right now. Okay. Well, well I'm, you I'm missed gonna, out. We can drop a. I'm going to drop a special episode on it. Special we'll episode be just for the just gas startups. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> interview oh, each other. Oh, oh, <laughs> Josh, what did you think about the event last night? Oh, I can, got, I can attest. Present. It was a hell of a party. Best. It's for sure the best party I've been to in the last 15 months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we praise a little bit. It's the only party low, I've been to in 15 bar, months. It's the only, only, only building I've been in with more than three people and anyone who wasn't related to me in the last 15 months, but it was good for that. Uh, oh, man, it was a hell of a party. I mean, it really was uh, uh, more than a packed house. It was incredible how many people turned up. Just a great, great vibe, great scene. Everybody was friendly and was yeah. really happy to be there. Um, I where mean, do, it was amazing. What's that? Where do you live at? Rice Village, oh, okay. uh, in Houston, but now saw, we're kind of split in time well, between. I, I didn't know if you were in Houston or because you were in Boston. We got point, out right? of we, um, yeah, we moved to Houston about five years ago. Okay, um, and uh, now we we kept a place up in New Hampshire that's kind of been our COVID hideout. Yeah, um, so uh, now I'm kind of basically split in time, split in time between, between places, and we'll see how two. things yeah. evolve as as it all comes back to life. The crazy so, thing is, he's got a place on the beach in in New Hampshire. Yeah. Okay, think about where New Hampshire's at. Do you know New Hampshire had a beach? It's only 18 miles long. That's crazy. It's the smallest coastline, probably like a, not just of any state, probably like that. Any I was country. like, wait, I've been to New Hampshire. I was like, I had no idea that there was a beach in it's, New Hampshire. Nobody does, but I'll tell you, it's nice. We're it's nice. Uh, uh, geography, geography lessons today. Uh, party like last night, like get, getting that kind of turnout, just thinking, uh, uh, you know, these guys, I mean, you know how to pe people get, how to get people to show up. I haven't, uh, I used to, you know, I used to throw parties like that when I was like in my twenties in Dallas. Actually, I threw like one party like that when I was in my twenties in Dallas. And like the next morning, my watches were gone. Like half my clothes have been rifled through. Yeah. Like there were a bunch of empty kegs. Like I never threw a party like that again. Yeah. <laughs> that was the peak. That was yeah. the peak of, of uh, party Josh. So you were on the podcast, man, I don't know how to be. 2019? 
it had to be so. end of 2019, so it's been a while. Yeah. Um, Source Water uh, came on the show. I don't even think we introduced the company on this episode yet, but you're with Source Water. Yep. And so you guys had a great presentation uh, last night. You know, since it's been so long since you've been on the show, for any of our new listeners, why don't you tell us what Source Water is? And then let's talk about the evolution. Of, so much has changed. Yeah, so much has yeah. changed. Yeah. It, it's, it has really evolved. I mean, today, Source Water really is a bit of a misnomer um, because um, it's not at all uh, just about water anymore. I mean, we're really pioneering energy intelligence and um, we were strive to be the technology leader in upstream energy and water intelligence. Um, like to think we are, uh, we're working at it. Uh, we're a small crew, but we've progressed a lot. The original, the original idea back in from some ideas I had in 2012, um, during the rise of the whole shale revolution, I started the company beginning of 2014 based on some of those ideas. Um, and the plan was to create the first online marketplace for water sourcing and recycling and disposal in the oil and gas industry, or actually in any industry. Um, so basically water as a, uh, industrial commodity and that's evolved tremendously over the years. So we did that for, uh, we still have an online marketplace, but it's just not the business anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we the way it evolved was we started with a focus on the Marcellus, so for those who don't know, basically Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, yeah. because there's a real shortage of saltwater disposal capacity. And for those who don't know, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but basically saltwater is the primary waste product of the oil and gas development process. And so you yeah. have to do something with it. And what companies learned, particularly in the Marcellus, because there was really no place to put that salt water was that the best thing you can do with it is reuse it in a new frack, which ends up saving the money on the disposal and also saving the money on freshwater acquisition being better for the environment and economically all around. Right. So when I learned about this from friends in the industry, starting around 2012, I thought, Oh, that's a marketplace screaming to happen. You know, we can connect everybody and kind of connect their schedules and help them trade with each other. And then when the, uh, we did get a lot of the companies in the Northeast using the system, but people weren't really paying us to use it, you know? So it was kind of more of a hobby, you know, we're sort of making connections for people and then, Hey bud, thanks for that. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, we moved down to Houston in 2016. You know, we had the whole crash in 2015, 2016, only place anything was going on was the Permian. And so we started spending a lot of time in West Texas and we learned it's just a completely, totally different market. Everything's different, you know, in West Texas versus in the Northeast, completely different. And so we were relearning it from scratch, um, a whole different scene. And, um, that, that got us learning about how the logistics work, how other elements, of the process work. And then in 2017, when the market really started roaring back, at least in the Permian, what happened was we started getting a lot of companies and a lot of landowners signing up for the marketplace. We started getting a lot of searches on the marketplace for water and, uh, disposal capacity and recycling. Uh, and logistics, you know, looking for truck capacity, but we weren't getting any transactions <laughs> and our business model was to get paid a couple of points on transactions done online. And those were not happening. People and just yeah, wanted the intelligence. Uh, yeah. And we're getting tons of usage. And so yeah. 
what I realized at some point was, you know, really what we're operating here is a free data service for the oil and gas industry, which is great people, not my charity of choice. And so <laughs> how do we turn this from a hobby into a business? Well, you know, we just got it. We got to bite the bullet, give up the dream of getting a couple of percentage points on a $10 billion a year water market and uh, start doing what everybody else does, which is offer a data service where mm. there's annual license fees and, you know, we give people a password and then they access our system and they can create reports and see what's going on. And so that, that, that was like uh, mid-2017 when that started to kind of become clear. And so that put us down this path where, you know, people really valued our water and disposal price data, which was not available anywhere else at all. Um, and basically, you know, who has what and how much where as far as water and disposal. But um, that wasn't, you know, if we're going to start charging a cover charge to walk into our club, yeah, <laughs> like a party last night, we got to make sure there's a party inside, right? You can't yeah. like walk in and then there's like, you know, one dude with an empty beer standing at a bistro <laughs> table and the rest of the joint is a little bit too well lit and empty. Yeah. And then they're like, why did I give you 20 bucks? I'm out of here. You suck. Yeah. I, so, lo I love that one guy asked last night in the Q&A, do you guys sell your data as a subscription? You're like, that's typically how I prefer to sell it. <laughs> as a that was an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> like, but then it's also like, yes, we do sell it. And actually, we only sell it to people who also have money. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to, we'll sell it, but you also be able to buy it. Because well, it turns out that's less common than you think, at least yeah. in 2020 it was. <laughs> it's interesting to hear y'all's story of finding product market fit and staying fluid mm -hmm. and pivoting. This is really, I mean- Look, most startups fail because they can't find product mm. market fit, right? And so you have this thesis, hey, we can create this market point or marketplace. We can take a couple points off of deals that are happening. Which I thought was a great idea. Yeah. But just the market didn't follow through with yeah. transactions, you know? Yeah. And so it's the thesis starts, you start seeing all this activity over here and you're like, oh, maybe we were wrong on the thesis of what people actually found valuable. And so shift the business, pivot to focus on that aspect. And I, I think that that's um, a really good talking point, you know, just industry agnostic for tech companies is like, hey, you don't want to build in a silo because hmm. you may be building something that the industry thinks that they need. And then you could be completely off base and it's like, hey, no, we actually want product B over here. And so being able to pivot, I mean, that's that's huge and it's hard too, right? It was a process and even, even the pivot itself wasn't like, a clean break. Like there was a period there where we were working on, um, you know, e-ticketing and logistics systems for water trucks, because that's what people were asking for in 2016. That's its own whole yeah. story. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, uh, and then there was a period of time where we were trying to use the marketplace to sell ads to water services companies. And, you know, we sold some ads, Yeah, but like that wasn't, you know, going far enough. So it wasn't like, Ding! The light bulb went on, and like switch and it's on. Things, it was. You, you tried this. You we tried kept trying that, things. We kept trying. And you things. didn't let that deter you from still wanting to pivot and find new things. It's, it's the, the, the you know what the um, I just one of the greatest startup phrases I've ever heard. A, a couple of years ago, I went to a lunch talk by the guy who founded Waze. Yeah, and um, he was asked a question. Um, you know, you've started so many successful companies, invested in so many successful companies. How is it that once one of these little companies you invest in gets successful, that they don't just get ripped off by, you know, 10 other companies? And he said, you know, the, the success of the startup, the reason it's so hard to rip it off and just copy it, isn't, you know, they can see what you're doing, 
but they don't know the journey of failure that led to it. Yeah. yeah. And so they don't know where to go from there because they're going to make all the mistakes you already made if all they know is where you're at now. And I just, I loved that phrase journey of failure because Lord knows it describes <laughs> ours. <laughs> well, it reminds me like I have a lot of, uh, we'll call them first time founders reach out to me and they're like, Hey, I want to tell you about this idea. I need you to sign an NDA. And I was like, I'm not signing an NDA. I was like, look, one, I have so much going on. <laughs> digital. I don't have time to go pursue your idea. Yeah. Two, the idea is probably, you know, most ideas are shit mm. to begin with. Three, execution's everything, right? Yes. Like, I don't know what you know. Like, you could tell me the idea and I still don't have the information or the context or the experiences mm. to go pursue that. And so, you know, as the company grows, it's the same thing. It's like, you can't be like, no one can rip off digital wall cutters. They can't do what we do. Mm. They can't. Same thing, you know, with ways like you can't rip off those products because they don't have all the uh, the experiences and, and learning across to have that context to know, okay, this is where we need to go in the future. So I, I think that a lot of people get afraid of that. Of knowing knowing what off. didn't work or doesn't work turns yeah. out to be at least as important as knowing what does work. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> more. So, at least as important. But it does, but it is also another, you know, startup lesson that's actually a little bit tougher one, which is. You know, my guiding principle when I started Sourcewater, I mean, there were a couple of things I was putting together because I knew I wanted to start a new venture. I've, I've been starting companies since I was 16. Uh, and, you know, the, the key principles were, it seemed to me there was this incredible growth in the U.S. energy market, you know, this, this revival of the U.S. energy market. There was a new thing, um, enormous industry because it was so new, there were going to be a lot of opportunities to solve problems. You know, this basic idea of anything that gets that big, that fast, there's just no way they know what they're doing, right? There's going to be things that need fixing, opportunities that arise. And it seemed to me that water was the biggest of the new things. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, there's going to be something about water where there's an opportunity on the marketplace, data, digital, something, you know, because there's just nothing there and it's a big thing. Um, also, from my point of view, it wasn't so big that like Google or Amazon was going to do it, right? Yeah. So it was something where you could start a startup and not get stomped. But the, but you know, a lot of, I don't know if it's like 99% of success is staying power, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you're in a big market and it's evolving and it's growing, there's going to be opportunities. You're going to figure it out eventually, but is the eventually on your time horizon or is it, you know, the next guy or the next guy who's mm. actually going to get there. And there's, there's so many industries and opportunities you see that are like that. Uh, I mean, you know, there's so many times where them. being first is actually not totally a competitive advantage. You yeah. look at like Friendster, right. Yeah. And things, and even MySpace, I will say, I mean, they had, they did have their, their heyday and they did have some success, but obviously not to the extent that something like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram right. and everything else. Tom cashed out. I don't think he's complaining at all. Yeah, no, Tom, <laughs> Tom got a lot of friends out but of yeah, the But yeah, it's deal. like being on a SWAT team. You don't want to be the first guy going through the door, you know? <laughs> right, that's right. That's right. I'll hold back a little bit, right? <laughs> I'm the cleanup crew. Yeah. Um, so you, you want to be on the cleanup crew sometimes. Yeah, it's, um, yeah that's very true. And uh, um, certainly for us, um, I just, I've seen it with, because I also make, I mean, I've been fortunate to be successful in some prior ventures that I started. And Make so- what? I was unfortunately not megabots, even though like it was the most awesome thing ever. And like, I just, um, that's its own story. Kind go of. go just look up on YouTube megabots. You'll, you'll find some videos of. I wish I was about. on the, like, I just, I, I gotta say, I have these fantasies of being on the Forbes list 
And, you know, you're kind of going down the Forbes list and it's like real estate, finance, real estate, finance, finance, real estate, (laughs) internet, giant battle robots. (laughs) (laughs) This is my dream someday is that, you know, I become ultra wealthy and I just invest in like these cool startups. Like, I don't give a damn if it has any realistic chance of succeeding. That one got, that one got like global worldwide top of the Facebook trending list media coverage. I mean, it was, well, you they know, made, they made that Hugh Jackman movie with big fighting robots, right? That's probably based on your earlier. life. Like you're Hugh Jackman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got some good press. I was, I was more the guy behind the scenes cause I was the founding investor. Um, I wasn't on the front line, but it, I mean, it had a couple of unbelievable moments that were so much fun. And yeah. unfortunately, the, the the problem with giant fighting robots, and we say giant, like 20 foot tall robots <laughs> yeah. with like two people in the cockpit. Like real giants. Um, like a real giant. <laughs> the, uh, and we, I mean, we built two of them for reals, you know, and they cost <laughs> millions of dollars to build. And that's the problem. I and mean, I talked to people, lots of investors. We got to everybody, you know, like, like the, um, the guys, uh, the Fertitta brothers, you know, yeah. who started UFC and uh, all these people, we talked to them and the feedback we got was awesome idea, but here's the problem those robots are really expensive and you can't afford to wreck them, right? Like yeah. a UFC, yeah. you know, it's it's the the guy's yeah. parents who are like, you know, crying, <laughs> yeah. crying tears that like their their son's getting his yeah, fighters are butt kicked, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, but you're, you know, you're that, that was voluntary, right? <laughs> yeah. you, you build a $5 million robot and you're like, oh, can you not tear the arm off yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, I mean, just you see with like SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing other rockets, it's mm. like, space travel wasn't sustainable and economic until you could figure out, oh, hey, we can reuse uh, the bodies of the rockets. Same thing here. It's like, yeah, we can build these badass robots, but then we're literally destroying them. They're, they're battle bots. And so it's, it's its own whole set of lessons. Each one of these, you know, we talk about journey of failure. I mean, I've been in one of the strange or unusual things about my career is like, I've just, I've done such a variety of different fields you know, the medical devices and internet and giant robots and energy and real estate. And so that's just kind of ended up being my, that's been my journey is to a lot of different things, but in depth each time. Yeah. And so each one of those had just a whole set of lessons where it was like, okay, there was no way to know this until you actually did it. And now I'm not going to do this again because it was hard and I'm going to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out that each new thing is also hard. Why is that? <laughs> I think it's the nature of the beast. I think when you're building, there's nothing, there's nothing easy when you're building. And that comment that you just made about you don't learn things until you actually do it. Mm. It's like you can sit here and you can write out a white paper and you can build pro formas. You can do all of this. Mm. And it's good. Good exercise. But until you actually start doing it, you don't <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. It's you always learn. something you didn't expect. It yeah. really is <laughs> like the thing that makes sense. It turns out to be something that only makes sense in retrospect. Yeah. You know, yeah, and you then back, it seems super back, obvious. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you look back, that makes perfect sense. Like, right. I should have thought of that. Yeah, and with with all of these, but you know, um, man, you it, got me like. Sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but you got me like. Like, do we need a digital wildcatters battle bot? Mm, mm. <laughs> like, even if it's a, like, how much? Three million, four million, or more than that? Okay, well, here's the sad truth. If you had gone on eBay about a year and a half ago, you could have bought yourself a three and a half million dollar world famous giant fighting robot called Eagle Prime. Yeah. For like $30,000. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, my God. Are you In serious? fact, they, they finally put it, like, the last one, they put it on eBay. 
and um, and the auction went through. And it, it, like the first time, it ended up at like a couple hundred. It might have been like three hundred thousand dollars. And it's like okay, ten cents on the dollar. All right. Turns out it was like some like Russian. 10 year old twit who had like bid on it and didn't have a fuck to his name. And so then of course they had to auction it again. Yeah. And then it's like a lot less exciting the second uh, time. Like, well, what was wrong with the first one? Well, it was some kid in Ukraine kid, who didn't yeah. actually have any money. Jeez. So, so some guys bought, bought it for, for a lot less. Grand. Yeah. Yeah. But do you we know, know who it went to? Yeah. Actually a there's a, you can find on YouTube. I forget the name, but it was actually a good company. Like a guy who's actually in the business of like building like crazy tank cars and stuff so it's somebody knows how to maintain it because that yeah. was actually the hard part that's what i was going to say is like maintain it because i was like man it'd be totally. awesome to have and i'll park it out here in front of wildcat or warehouse and yeah. just like <laughs> postured up oh yeah i was thinking lot, like hey one day i'm just going to have the world's most expensive lawn art you know because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't fit in the garage but, but actually that was the problem with it i mean this show's not about megabots but but here's here was the problem right because you think okay now we invested three and a half million dollars building this awesome asset but because it was like a one-off, unique specimen of yeah. complicated machinery, you basically had to have a team of eight different engineers to keep it running for yeah. more than like five minutes. So then it's like, okay, so we need, you know, somewhere between six and eight specialists. Like one's, you know, one's the electrical guy, one's the hydraulics guy, yeah. you know, one's the software guy. And each of those people is like a six-figure salary. And so to <laughs> Yeah, sure. The robot costs three and a half million dollars, but just to like turn it on, yeah. right? Oh, and by the way, you need like a tractor trailer to get there. Yeah, uh, and so you need I to bring a second tractor trailer I with a cargo container full of tools and backup parts. <laughs> I was thinking of the opex because I was like, yeah, get it, park it out in the parking lot. But I'm very familiar with hydraulics. Worked with them a lot in the oil field, mm -hmm. and it's like, man, you leave that out in the parking lot in Houston. Shit's going to start wearing down, rusting out, and then you want to run it. You have hydraulics popping and electronics oh, yeah. going out. It's like you need a team of engineers, you know, within two weeks of buying it. If you're not maintaining it, it's just mm -hmm. becoming a rust bucket. The, 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 the crowning achievement of that company was actually staging the world's first giant robot battle in Japan in this massive, I was there, in this massive, massive abandoned steel mill building that was insane. I mean, it was like post-apocalypse for real. Would have I was like, awesome. it Digital was would have awesome. Made some content on that for sure. But <laughs> to do that there, it cost over a million dollars just to have the event. Yeah. Because you not only had to ship a, 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 a yeah, putting 10 foot robots ton on freight. robot overseas, <laughs> yeah. but you, you literally had to ship cargo containers of the backup equipment and tools and everything. Did you and guys you have send them assembled or disassemble them in crates? Uh, they, um, it, it did, it, it, the actual robot compacts down. So it was assembled. Okay. Um, yeah, so but you need a lot like of this transformer movie scene of these battle bots, like being on assembled a on a ship, <laughs> going across Voltron, yeah. Yeah, putting all the parts together. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was it was an awesome event, but it was tremendously expensive to run it, and you had to send all that stuff over there, and you know, to and each time it's like you know the thing had a, a six foot chainsaw sword you know i mean it was just one of the weapons right and so you're like by the way that's why it was like dangerous to do it fast you know so you had to kind of and, and then like something breaks down <laughs> and then you got three guys climbing on like which hose broke you yeah. know like it's just great oh man dude i love this man like um, we gotta have a whole podcast dedicated to battle bots like, yeah, i want to revive the idea i think I think we can get it going. Yeah, well, there's still uh, it's still on YouTube. It still exists. It's Megabots. I don't know, megabots.com. It's just fun. That's so fun. Um, get the t-shirts while they're still there. So I forgot how you even, 
you know, obviously we have the podcast back in the day, but how did you even get into uh, the idea of source water in the energy industry? Yeah. Going from cool things like megabots and then you got stuff in real estate. How did you uh, come across opportunity? It was, you know, what actually happened was in, so I mentioned I've been starting companies since I was in high school. Um, I mean, I, um, in the very early 90s, like 91, uh, a friend and I started what was arguably the first online matchmaking company, um, which became Amour.com, which we sold to a French company because we owned Love.com in French in like 1996. Uh, God, in 1996. Yeah, That's it was. So early. Dude, you were <laughs> such an early internet pioneer. You're making me feel really young right now. Too early. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was actually literally, as far as we can tell, it was the first time ever that a domain name had been sold across an international border. Yeah. So first matchmaking company, first domain name well, I mean, sold. Dude, that's and three so, years. I think that's um, three years before my family even owned a computer. Yeah. We had the Apple II like as our first Fra computer. I had a Franklin Ace 1000, which was an Apple II knockoff that cost a lot less than the <laughs> Apple II. Uh, but then I had two Apple II GSs. Uh, I, had, I had a lot of stuff. Yeah, I was like a fourth grade uh, hacker uh, uh, in the early 80s. And... Um, Anyway, we, we, we sold that a few years too early to get out of the internet and, um, whoops, yeah. uh, that's still the, uh, that's still the, uh, uh, probably the, in retrospect, worst financial decision I ever made was to sell. Yeah. But you, you can know, never regret, you know, taking it off the table and, and, you know, like I have a nowhere near similar story, mm -hmm. but like I invested in Netflix back when Netflix tanked, everyone mm -hmm. said it was that it was dead. This is back when it was just DVDs? Uh, or was it they streaming? just then? started streaming. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't remember what the event was, but like they started increasing their pricing and the stock just absolutely tanked. I fucking went all in on that. Mm. And I sold it for a 200% gain mm. and it ended up becoming the best performing stock over the next decade. And so I'm always like, that was my worst financial <laughs> there selling you go. it. You ever know but what it's it like, can you really regret, you know, selling and, and taking taking some money off the table? But well, in this case, yes. But I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, I definitely okay, still let's see. That. I was a twenty one year old, fifty percent co founder of the first online matchmaking company <laughs> when I was in college, <laughs> so and I but, sold it in nineteen ninety six. You know, just think in nineteen ninety nine. It's like, dude, you go back and look at mm. these old videos on YouTube, and you know mm. they're really popular in the blockchain and cryptocurrency community of going back and looking at people talking like in 1997 mm. about what is email it's like oh it's a it's you know just a fad and, and, and you know it's yeah. going away like yeah you think about like you going back to hindsight look yeah. back in hindsight it's like obviously the internet was going to be a big thing back then people were like, no it it's, wasn't it's it's true colin and and it and my thinking at the time was um i had been um i'd been doing a summer internship for um, a super small venture capital firm um, in my hometown of Bethesda, Maryland, in the in the summer, and um, the uh, I was introduced to a guy starting up a medical device company doing wireless miniature wireless vital signs monitors, cardiorespiratory monitors, initially for babies, like SIDS monitors, but the very first ever yeah. wireless infant apnea monitors, and they were tiny little things. And the existing monitors were like a like a 1970s VHS with you know faux wood paneling that weigh 20 pounds. You got wires over the baby, and they're going off all the time. And so, my um, 
the the founding CEO of that company, and at that time it was literally just him and me as his summer intern, <laughs> and he had some backing from these venture capital folks, and he was like, "Josh, you gotta, you know, sign on with me. We're gonna do some awesome stuff. We're gonna save a lot of babies and like help a lot of people." And by the way, by the time you're 25, I'm old, I'm going to retire. You're going to be the CEO of a billion dollar company. And I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I thought really my calculation was, okay, I've got this online matchmaking company where I, by the way, we served high school. It was a little different from the way people think of it today. And so we served mostly high school and some college students because it was actually run through the schools so as it, a fundraiser. It was tender. It was kind of like Tinder, right? And, um, I only care about one thing. That's right. Meet up at lunch. And uh, the, uh, but I was like, you know, I can do the numbers here. And it's like, even if we get like every high school and college student in America on this thing, based on the current business model, like this business really can't be bigger than like $20 million a year. Now that would actually be pretty good, but I, you know, I was like, but healthcare, you know, vital signs monitors. That's actually the largest sector in the U.S. economy. It's like 20% of the U.S. economy. This is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Yeah. So do I want to be kind of a little bit seedy, king of online matchmaking and kind of this niche that's a little weird? Or do I want to be just dominating the largest sector of the American economy? <laughs> yeah. So you were already <laughs> you were already looking at the the TAMs of different industries. I was, you. I was. And the but you know, that was completely the wrong calculation. You know, yeah. but hey, you know, so I thought I was being I, you know, I was being rational about it. And I'm like, get into this. Well, I spent the next five, six years kind of, you know, learning what it means to be in a regulated industry where you can't just come up with a cool thing, try it out, see if it works, see if someone's buying it. Oh, whoops, the baby died. No. So it's, you know, a completely different, um, it's one of those things where like, I learned a ton, you know, talk about the journey of failure. Mm -hmm. And then I got to the end of that and I was like, I'm never doing that again. Well, it's, the same thing, it's the same thing in oil and gas too, especially mm -hmm. on the physical hardware tech side. I mean, it's not something you can just start in like, you know, I'll, I'll give you, Great example, um, great company out of Houston, um, let's say like Houston Mechatronics, hmm. you know, underwater ROVs and um, autonomous robot. Let's go back into the robot conversation. And I mean, super cool technology, but the type of work they do is like, hey, if this fails, you, know, you could have a BOP preventer hmm. give out and that costs lives. And so it's so hard in these industries, medical, energy, hmm. It's like you can have cool ideas, but then it's like you got to get through that regulatory burden. And then, you know, the the um, liability, you know, these companies mm. like in oil and gas companies are like, hey, yeah, we're really interested in the technology. Who else is using it? You know, no oh, one ever wants to be the first one. To yeah, use like it, so. they're first to be third, it's not first to be second. Yeah. <laughs> but, there, but there are also very rational, good reasons for that, unfortunately. And that's one of the learnings of, uh, I mean, it was a different learning with medical devices because that's where, you know, you got all this regulation because like, well, if the thing doesn't work the way you say it does, people die. And you argue back like, well, but if they don't have it, then they're definitely going to die versus only maybe die. Right. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> that makes logical sense, but that's not how the regulations look at it. Right. <laughs> so the odds it, here. <laughs> it, it was kind of a strange, you know, the way the regulations are written, you basically had to prove that your new awesome thing is no worse than, but also not really any different from some other bad thing that they already made the mistake of approving. And I say that a little bit facetiously, but it's also true. Like literally the regulatory process is one where you must do all these studies to prove that your new thing 
is actually not significantly different from, neither, neither worse nor better than, some other thing they already approved, which is not real intuitive when as an entrepreneur, the whole point is to make something that's like awesome and 10 times better. If it's like actually 10 times better, they'd be like, oh, this is a different thing. And now you have to do a 15 year process of going through all these bigger clinical trials because what you're doing is fundamentally different from something done before. You have to prove that you're the same as something that's been done before, but not worse, but not too much better either. So in in God, oil and gas, so it is, it is, it's very, it's a different, and that's why it takes, you know, just billions of dollars to drugs are worse. I mean, you know, creating new pharmaceuticals is, mm-hmm. um, is at that level, but creating a really new medical device. Like if you were somebody who was trying to create a new artificial heart or something crazy like that, like the stuff you got to go through to put a machine inside somebody's body, yeah. we were only putting it on the outside of people. It's like a little, little tiny belt that was sensing your, your heart and breathing, but because we were putting it on babies, there was a special extra tough standard for yeah. what you did. And so it made it a lot. And then from, tough. you know, it's like we had John Arnold on the podcast the other day and he was talking about bar none, the most powerful lobby in DC is healthcare industry. And so if you're um, creating a device mm. that may be misaligned with someone else's incentives, there's a lot of money working against you there too, to make sure that things maybe don't get approved. There's kind of a, what I, what I learned in, in a nutshell is that with respect to healthcare technology, there's kind of an iron triangle that's almost impossible for a new company to break through. And the iron triangle is you've got regulation, which is influenced by lobbying and everything else and all the bureaucracy and that just, you have to have deep, deep pockets to make it through that process. But you also have the insurance companies, which health insurance pays for almost anything in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And they are in the business of not paying for new things, right? And certainly not paying more for something that's better, right? They're in the business of paying less for less things. That's how they make money. So they will only pay for something if one, it's approved by regulators, but two, doctors have to demand the thing. And that's what for their patients and that's what forces the insurance company to begrudgingly agree to pay for the new thing. Well, doctors, that's the third part of the Iron Triangle. Doctors are like the toughest market to persuade just in the world. Why? Because each doctor controls just millions and millions and millions of dollars of spending by virtue of being the person who writes the prescription. They are the gatekeeper. And so what are all those pharmaceutical companies and, and medical device companies spending their money on? They spend it on influencing and locking up the doctors so that they don't start recommending a, a new thing that's a competitor. So, so my this, dad was a yeah. district manager for McNeil Pharmaceuticals and AstraZeneca. And mm. So I grew up, you know, we'd be at uh, Seattle Mariners games up in the suite. With you know a bunch of doctors in there, and that, like learned from an early age, and like dude, this is a fucked up system. Yeah, that we have in healthcare. So you kids who you know you kids who are thinking of going into healthcare, I don't want to discourage any of the next innovators out there, but <laughs> yeah. so I learned that one the hard way. Well, now you know in oil and gas, there's oil and gas is not as bad as healthcare in terms of breaking in, but yeah. it's still really tough, and it's for a different set of reasons. It's not so much because of regulation; it's because of you know, there's a number of factors. Um, one is fundamentally in terms of oil and gas, boy, it's super expensive to drill a well, 
right? Mm-hmm. You do not want to screw that up. Think about yeah. this: like you spend ten million dollars mm. to drill and complete a well, right? That's like that's like a Series A for most tech startups mm. in one well. And it's yeah. a dry hole. It's shit out of luck. And so they're extremely risk averse, very mm. slow to try new things. And um, it's also, and because of that, and also because it's geographically concentrated and much of other reasons, it's a very relationship-based industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's hard to break in because a lot of things are done on trust and relationships. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's funny, I think about with, with source water, I mean, a lot of success is showing up. I've been at it for eight years now. And so now I'm starting to be one of the people who keep showing up, right? Because you show up. A lot of people show up in this industry in the first year or two. They're like, I have an amazing thing that no one here has ever thought of before, and it is going to blow your minds. And people are like, that guy's going to be gone next month. Right? (laughs) (laughs) He don't know what he's in for. He's going to be gone. And so then they don't buy from you because you're not around. Right? And it's like, and and so you've got to have that staying power. And it's like, I remember after the 15, 16 crash and 17, you know, when we were starting to get meetings again, and I really had this feeling like people are like, you know what? He's still here. There must be something to it, <laughs> right? And um, and even more so now, right? Coming through 2020, it's like, oh, he's still here. Oh, yeah, there's got to be something here. You know, they've yeah. got some big companies using it now. And all right. Um, but uh, uh, there's there's those elements. And it's also, you know, when you're selling to big companies, it's funny because the oil and gas industry, you know, the 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 legendary founders of it, right? The, the original wildcatters, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're the, um, these, you know, true risk takers, you know, 99 of hundred whom are lost to history in a dusty grave. Right. But like that, the handful who just like struck it, struck it big, you know, literally struck oil, they're legends, you know? Yep. But what followed from that is big organizations structured to avoid risk, uh, you know, and make good investments. And um, the the way that that process works and is structured, virtually no one in the industry is structurally rewarded for innovation, right? You're rewarded for reliability, you're rewarded for not failing, you're rewarded for not losing money. But almost no one, except truly at like the founder CEO level, not even the CEO level for the big companies, but like, unless you're like a founder, unless you're like a new wildcatter, you're not rewarded for taking a chance on something new that turns out to have a big upside, right? You're rewarded for avoiding downside. And that makes it really hard to sell a new thing. And that's not just an oil and gas thing, by the way, that's true across kind of big industry in general. That's the way that it is. And so when I meet you know, young entrepreneurs and people that coming out of the MIT program that I was in, you know, with some new chemical or uh, 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 some new technology that may be kind of an advanced technology that could really, some kind of new material science thing, you know, where it's like, this could change things by 10X or 100X. But I, one of the first things I tell them is like, you got to understand the motives of the people that you're selling to. There's both an enterprise sales process, which is its own whole thing, right? You got the, get the agreement of 20 different people who don't have the same interest before they'll even try it. But you got to remember their their decision making isn't so much based on what's the upside you can bring them. You've got to look at all the other trade offs that they've got to even try something different. Uh, and um, that's true in a lot of big industries where it's like, oh well, we can, uh, you know, put a new kind of coating on the pipes in this refinery that will cause the refinery to be 
5% more efficient. I'm sort of making this up, but not really, because I'm, I'm thinking of a particular one. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, it'll make, it'll make the refinery 5% more efficient. And since refineries run at, you know, whatever, a 5% margin, it's like you're doubling the value of the refinery by increasing the margin by 5%. And it's like, well, that, that makes a lot of sense kind of looking backwards from that, you know, that day when that happens. But now look at what they would have to do to put the coating on the pipes in the refinery. They'd have to shut down the refinery for several months, pull out all the pipes, put them in. And then how do they know it's really going to work or they didn't just ruin that, you know, $200 million refinery? Yeah. They're just not going to do that for a 5%, you know, gain, even though it makes all the, the sense. The change has to be so big that it has to be yeah, worth it. It does. And it's, it's also yeah. the path to making that change happen. I mean, like you said, it's like, okay, we got to do a turnaround. We got to shut this, this refinery down for months, take a risk on something. It's like, what if that coating completely screws our plumbing in our refinery? And then we just, (laughs) and so it goes very slow, goes very slow. And it, you know, it inches forward. And so then again, you got to have that, that staying power. Right. And it's not, and it's, it, that's not irrational. You know, that's, you look at it from, you know, put the other shoes on and, you know, for the, for the company that owns the refinery and the person who's responsible for managing the refinery, the entrepreneur is like, why are these people so stupid? Why don't they see my genius? You know? And it's like, put the other shoes on. It actually makes sense that they don't want to make a big change all of a sudden in a $200 million facility. Yeah. uh, You know? And so. You have to have objective thinking and be able to see it from their perspective too. And I think a lot of uh, founders miss that sometimes it's like hey it's actually a rational thought of hey Mm -hmm. maybe we should take our time evaluating this and that could take years you got to have that that empathy (laughs) but so i um, am the the, uh the healthcare tangent which is own ridiculous industry but basically i was living in dallas in uh 2001 and uh company run out of money and it run out of money a couple times before but you know, in the dot-com era, you could raise venture capital pretty quickly. Then we had um, the dot-com crash and then 9-11. And you guys probably weren't even born then. But it was, it was one of those. <laughs> it was, that young, de- definitely born. <laughs> I'm not 18. Uh, it was one of those times where there was just no risk capital in the economy. Yeah. And so, you know, we weren't a dot-com, but it didn't matter. Um, and so we ran out of money for basically the last time. So there was a, you know, a few months stretch there at the end of 2001 where I was living in Dallas and like my nice little house uh, in Lakewood and uh, kind of making myself a breakfast every morning in my bathrobe and wondering what I was going to do in my life. So I was unemployed in Dallas. Uh, I was applying to business schools. I was kind of sitting around and um, I got ridiculously lucky. Different story to our podcast. Um, I got hired by President George W. Bush to be one of his speechwriters. And so that's why you're so good. <laughs> well, there you, go. <laughs> there's some things you learn on the job. There's some things you already have to know. Uh, and so um, I it was super lucky break for me. Um, I moved to DC. You know, they were like, so when are you going to be able to start? I'm like, uh, tomorrow. <laughs> I have so many questions, but if I, we dive into it, it's going to yeah. be a three hour episode. It's like I start right now. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I moved to DC. Um, it was a good time to be moving to DC from Texas uh, and, uh, you know, early, early, uh, uh, George W. Bush administration, I was the, uh, chief speechwriter for the treasury secretary, which was Paul O'Neill, uh, fairly recently deceased. Great, great guy, great leader. Uh, and, 
and I stayed for uh, a year into Jon Snow's term, not the Jon Snow everybody knows today as the uh, <laughs> King of the North. Yeah. <laughs> Jon Snow, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, and uh, 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 had a tremendous experience, although one of the, it was a, two years in that role was an incredible experience being on the inside of things that like you only kind of imagine. But certainly one of the things I learned fairly early in it is I'm I'm not, uh, I'm an entrepreneur yeah. and it didn't take long. It was one of those things where I had a job where anybody I talked to in Washington or anywhere else, you know, I'd be like, well, I'm a, a speechwriter for the president, I'm chief speechwriter for the treasury secretary. And you know, you'd always get the same reaction. Wow. That must be fascinating. And I was like, it is really interesting, but the reality is after about the first six months when I've kind of written one speech about just about everything that the treasury secretary would ever talk about. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm in a little office that doesn't really have a view writing words for somebody else. I'm not really allowed to tell people what I wrote. Like I can't take credit for, you know, the treasury yeah. secretary or the president's words. That's a big no, no. You're yeah. fired in a second if you do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm still like, just kind of like, I'd rather be running the show at, Josh's trash hauling company, you know, and just like kicking ass, hauling trash cans yep. <laughs> than in somebody else's office writing somebody else's words, even though everybody thinks it's super duper cool, you yeah. know, it's intellectually really cool, but it wasn't motivating for me. And so, um, actually a friend who was a good friend who was at the treasury at the same time. And I started kind of scheming to do real estate stuff. It just, we were in, in DC in the early 2000s. It was at, at the very beginning of a really big gentrification wave. DC had been, you know, kind of um, abandoned by the middle class decades earlier, like in the 60s. And mm -hmm. there were a couple of false starts along the years, but starting in the early 2000s, it really started taking off again. People started moving back to the city for real. And, um, the, uh, uh, we were just, we had both just moved from other places and we're just kind of having fun on our lunch hours, looking for houses, you know, and judge find everybody's been like, Oh, maybe we should live here. Like, what's the deal with this place? Knock on the door, ask them. And, um, that led to us not just each buying houses for ourselves, not knowing a thing about real estate, just, you know, cause Hey, you know, I want to live here. That's cool. Um, but we started kind of falling into real estate deals locally. You know, hey, what's the deal with this abandoned house? I don't know. Let's ask the person next door. What's the deal? Oh, I don't know. You know, chasing those down. And um, again, that's its own whole five-hour episode. <laughs> but we ended up becoming basically, you know, urban cowboy real estate developers. And we didn't have, we only had our own. We started the company with like $5,000 each that, you know, we had in savings accounts. And, um, our very first deal was just a ridiculous grand slam home run where we put this abandoned house under contract, discovered that it was a great development site, not knowing what zoning was, um, in Houston, of course there is no zoning, but in DC, it's a big deal. Yeah. And, um, end up having a bidding war with a bunch of different home developers who really wanted that site to build condos, not even knowing what that was, you know, like, we we're just like, Tell us about condos. How do you build those? What's involved? What does it cost? You know, what, what can you build here? Like, what is zoning? And uh, 
we end up selling the contract for, uh, you know, basically a hundred times what we had in it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 50 times, right? We, we had like a $10,000 earnest money deposit and we sold the contract for like net $500,000. Damn. And so now as a, as a, as a bit of an aside, my father's side of the family is from Atlantic city, New Jersey. And my grandfather, my, my late grandfather who worked every day of his life till he was 95, uh, not on weekends. He, uh, he built, he did the electrical contracting for all of the casinos in Atlantic city. Um, so his business was electrical contracting and he knew about the casinos and he used to say, it's not gambling for the casinos, right? Like yeah. they're the, the house is always going to make the money. You know, you yeah. don't want to throw your money away on that. But, uh, I, uh, uh, when we, when we had that first grand slam, I was like, I looked at my partner, you know, and I'm like, let's take the money and get out of here. You know, yeah. <laughs> like the casino made a mistake. Yeah. Let's get out before they catch us. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it's, um, but that's not what happened. Like we kept winning. And so, um, we had a great run for about 10 years a lot of stories. I mean, we were doing, we were getting in every kind of mess you can get into as an urban real estate developer. Again, it was all, we just kept our chips on that wheel and kept spinning and the chips kept stacking <laughs> up, but there was nobody else's chips and we were spinning them all every time. And so it's like each one got twice as big as the last one. And we, we had some losses. We didn't only have wins. Right. Yeah. And especially in the, then we hit the financial crisis, 2007, 2010, where, you know, even the biggest real estate companies were getting wiped out. We had personal signatures on tens of millions of dollars of loans on, you know, half built buildings that you couldn't sell. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we were dodging bankruptcy every day, you know, it's one of those things where like, you're not home when the process server shows up and, uh, you know, <laughs> then you come out of the basement and, uh, we, we made some really good deals at the bottom of the market. Um, I mean, we worked our asses off, you know, like it was, it was a war, you know, it was like yeah. from all sides. And, and by the way, urban real estate is a war from all sides. It's about as stressful a business you can be in that doesn't involve people shooting actual bullets at you, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not, we, we're, you know, it's different to be in the Marines, but <laughs> if it doesn't involve it, and we actually did have some people occasionally who did threaten us with death, um, like in alleys. <laughs> I never had a gun pulled on me, but, you know, we had a couple of slit throat, you know, yeah. <laughs> like take out your knees. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's real rough, right? Everybody's, I mean, and at a certain point it was like, you know, I remember my partner looking at me one, you know, one day and being like, why does everything have to turn into a fight? Like, why is every single deal turn out in some kind of like fight with people? <laughs> and I was like, men have been fighting over land since the beginning of time. And we're just lucky that today we do it with papers and not yeah. with spears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <for> sure. <laughs> because with little- papers... The smart little guys like you and me, we can win. With spears, we'd be on some Roman legionnaires, you know, spear tip out on a on a on a city gate. It's become, yeah. it's become a lot more more cordial. Uh, so so yeah, the smart though, guys win like, instead of the big guys. For you guys, when you started the marketplace for source water, I mean that wasn't a huge um you know, it was almost kind of a real estate play in itself, right? Just different types of properties. It, it is an understanding that's been one of the interesting things with my, you know, kind of investor developer hat on. But instead, in this case, we were really doing the data around it. Um, and so it was more like, if I were an investor, or if I were a player in this market, what would I need to know? Mm-hmm. And that's been a lot of the, 
um, the guiding influence over it. Um, so as we, you know, kind of connecting the dots on the story come like 2011, 2012, um, my, uh, real estate partner was basically like been a hell of a ride. I can't go on that ride again. You know, like yeah. I, I made my number and I'm ready to travel the world, do some other things, yeah. you know, <laughs> like I got to get off the roller coaster while it's in the station. And, uh, uh, and I was like, okay, well, what am I doing? So I went up to this program at, at, uh, MIT, uh, called the Sloan fellowship. And I got into this program there called energy ventures. I was just really interested in the rise of, you know, the shale industry and revival of energy in the U S and I was just like huge market growing fast, really new in a lot of ways. There's going to be a big opportunity there. I just got to figure it out. Um, and you know, now I've got my own capital and I'm going to, I'm going to come up with a new thing and I'm going to stick at it until it works. And, uh, you know, we went down that marketplace path, uh, and then we got to 2017, we figured out, um, you know, this needs to be a data service. Well, if it's going to be a data service and we're throwing a data party and we're charging people at the gate, we got to make sure there's a real party inside. And so that led us to start in addition to the marketplace data, getting other kinds of data in there because we had to have the regulatory data, which we started learning all about. And really the breakthrough was this, um, satellite imagery concept, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, still in the marketplace days, we were spending a lot of time in, uh, in Midland and, you know, driving around meeting with people and you'd see these signs by the side of the road, frack water for sale, call this number. And so we call those numbers, you know, and we'd always get some guy in his, in his, uh, at his ranch who was real excited to sell water to oil companies on the internet. Okay. How do we find all these people? Cause they love us. Turns out, uh, there are no regulatory records of frack ponds in Texas. None. And, you know, if you're, if you're a landowner in Texas and you want to dig a ditch on your property and put some plastic down and fill it with water and sell it to an oil company, in most cases, not every case, but in most cases, that's your God-given right as Texan. It's and, not the case in Oklahoma, as we found and, out. And not the case in a lot of other people, a lot of other places. I um, mean, there's exceptions to that, but for the most part, there's, there's no records of where frack ponds are, what kind of water's in them, who owns them. And yeah. so we had to figure out, well, how do we find all these and who owns them? And, uh, you know... The Permian Basin is the size of the nine smallest U.S. states combined. And even if you took the smallest state, Rhode Island, you wouldn't just like drive around Rhode Island trying to find swimming pools in people's backyards, right? Yeah. Like that would be crazy. Yeah. And we're talking about nine states, not just one. Yeah. So how do we find them? And we had this idea of, you know, commercial satellite imagery is just starting to become a thing. This is 2017. Maybe we can spot squares of water in the desert from space. So we started building systems to do that. And yeah, it turns out we could. But what we realized was, you know, there's actually a lot of other interesting things happening on the ground that we can see in the oil field and satellite imagery that either never shows up in any other data, like the frack ponds. It isn't reported to regulators at all. Frack ponds, well pads, lease roads, uh, certain other kinds of facilities like tank batteries, or is reported with such a long delay uh, that it's not that useful by the time you find out about it, like a spud report or a completion report, which, you know, fracks don't get reported and disseminated to the Railroad Commission and to frack focus anywhere from the fastest you'd find out is three months, but a lot of times it's six to nine months after 
the frack happens that you're able to find out about and it. You guys are using kind of satellites to, to be able to detect that right off the get-go. And so we started building more and more of these satellite systems that combined regulatory data for some of the training aspects that used computer vision and machine learning systems to recognize things on the ground. Uh, and then we got into some even newer stuff, which I'll get to that in a second. But the next, the next level was on top of the frack ponds, which we found correlated highly to completions and could predict completions when a frack pond appears, which just makes sense, right? You can't do a frack without a frack pond. So when a frack pond first shows up, there's probably a frack coming, right? Makes sense. Okay. Um, but then also the well pads, because you can't drill a well without a well pad. And it turns out there's no records of well pads. No one knows about them. And so we did a big study of every, we, we started discovering all the well pads and detecting them within days of their appearance in satellite imagery. And what we discovered is a lot of times the well pads get built before a drilling permit, which there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. it means that if you're detecting the well pad, you can see who is going to drill where before any other source mm -hmm. because they're getting ready to drill. They're building the road. They're building the pad. Then the permit goes in. And the other thing is even when the permit comes first, you a permit in Texas costs like $200. It's not much yeah. of a commitment. And a lot of permits never get drilled or they don't get drilled for a long time. And so if you're in a business that involves knowing either what, where your competitors are going to drill or chasing permits because you want to sell something that relates to the drilling process, you're behind the times every time if you're just you know either waiting for the permit to come out or you're wasting your efforts chasing permits that aren't really actually seriously going to get drilled anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But when a well pad appears under a permit that already exists, well, a well it's pack pretty can high cost like two hundred thousand dollars. So yeah. now you know they're serious about drilling. There. I think so many people think that you just go out there and just punch a hole in the ground, and everybody just kind of glosses over the idea of actually preparing the pad. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a lot of construction work, dozers out there, moving dirt, flattening the land, building the roads. Like it's it's a ton that goes into that. You know, so if you're making that investment, you guys are able to see. From then you the know they're, they're serious. Yeah. So that became a product we called Dirt Work Alert. Um, which is had a ton of interest from mineral investors because they're really in the business of getting ahead of the drill bit yeah. and a lot of the oil field service companies. Um, but then we took it a level up because we were, one of the things about in the, in the world of unconventionals, right, which is now something like 96% of new wells or horizontal wells, it's no longer the spud. It's no longer the drilling event that actually determines production. It's the completion. Mm -hmm. And actually completion spending is more than double on a per well basis yeah. is more than double the cost of the drilling. Mm -hmm. yep. So really the business is now mostly a business about completions, about the fracks, not about the drilling, but no one is actually tracking the frack crews and the fracks. It comes out of frack focus six months later. And so we were like, well, how do we track the fracks and how do we track the drilled but uncompleted wells? which you know, starts with the well being drilled, but actually you can't act on it unless you know it's still there, which means you have to also know has it been fracked. Well, what do you do when there's like a six to eight month delay on, on that? You don't know where to go or what's coming next or what's going to happen, you know, where the spending is. You don't know where the frack hits are coming, where your competitors are. How do we really track and even predict the fracks? And so there we were working on that. And we discovered some new technology applications to do that with the big breakthrough there being you can obtain, uh, commercially, you can obtain access to giant databases of anonymous cell phone tracking data. It doesn't have people's names. It doesn't have their numbers. But this is a major, major 
industry. And you know, you hope no one's surprised if you have a cell phone on you, your location is being tracked. That's why your GPS works, you know, yeah. <laughs> in Google map or wherever else you're using. Right. And so the, um, this data is, has been used for a while by retail industries. You know, if you think about like Starbucks, how they know what the foot traffic is in front of this yeah. location, how they know, you know, who's driving by and from which direction should they put a store there or not put a store there? Well, we had the idea apparently first in the industry to use that for figuring out upstream oil field supply chain activity. And so we were able to use that data in combination with the satellite imagery to uh, be able to figure out, in a sense, what we're doing is um, the, the level one is basically, okay, we know where the permits are. We are able to use satellite imagery to see where the well pads are and that perimeter. We're able to use a different kind of satellite imagery called synthetic aperture radar, uh, which cuts through cloud cover and is doesn't it isn't optical. It doesn't show you what your eyes see, but it bounces off of metal. And so you're able to use that to see, oh, now there's equipment on inside no that shit. well pad. Heard of that. Yeah. And so and it's great because it doesn't, it cuts through cloud cover. Yeah. Um, but you can see from the pattern of the equipment, not exactly what kind of equipment it is, but you can kind of see, okay you know, one small intense dot is a rig, whereas a whole lot of, of, of coverage is a frack, frack spread. spread. Yeah. And, um, and then we're able to take that a step further because we can monitor all those well pads, look for where there's equipment, and then uh, basically look for parties in the Permian, right? So there's a whole bunch of well pads out there. If we see a party happening, a whole bunch of people on a well pad where there's a permit and where there's equipment, um, now we know something's happening there. And it's either a drilling party or it's a frack party. And we know based on where those uh, mobile phones were in the past, kind of what type of work they do along with certain other characteristics. We know where that equipment gets parked in a yard and we know who owns the yard because uh, that stuff's on a map, right? Yeah. And so now we know, okay, that, that equipment came from this yard and therefore it's this company's crew. And we know who has the well pattern. So now we know who's getting ready to frack, who's fracking, how long it takes day by day. Yeah, and you start triangulating with all these different data sources. That's of crazy. Where the equipment's at. And where figuring out where, from. It's, where it comes from. And so it turned out to be a lot of benefits to that. There's even another level up from that, which is we're able to see essentially the supply chain links on a day-to-day -day basis between the sand mines and the frack sites, between the disposal wells and the production sites between the midstream terminals and the crude oil tank batteries, mm -hmm. we're able to see the individual truckloads getting moved between those locations daily, even hourly. That's pretty cool. Um, and so, um, and all this, we've had, we've had 13 US patents granted in the last few years. 10 of them relate specifically to this kind of combining satellite imagery, mobile location data, machine learning to be able to do near real time mapping of supply chain activity in the oil field. So it's, it's been really, fun and creative and exciting. And now this is really just that next level stuff, which we're calling Frackscape is mm. really just ready for, for launch now. So, which is why you guys are kind of mush, moving more into, you know, started off as just source water, water intelligence, mm. that kind of things. So and now you guys are moving into more broader kind of just oil field intelligence, upstream oil field intelligence. Exactly. And, and that logic, it's just one thing just followed the next, right? Cause it's like, well, all of the, why do we start trying to figure out where the fracks are happening? Because the frack is the event that uses all of the water, uses all of the disposal, uses all the prop and uses the frack crews. Like in the water business, 
drilling is not very important, right? Yeah. I mean, drilling uses almost no water. No one cares, right? Everybody wants to know, where's the frack? Where's the frack? Oh, we got to figure that out. But then it's like, well, now that we're figuring out where the frack is, that's actually two thirds of all the spending in the whole market. It's a hundred percent of the water, but it's two thirds of everything else. So yeah, that's kind of important and yeah. no one else is doing it. So you know, that, that leads us to, it was the same thing with the well pads and the frack ponds, right? It, it, one yeah. thing led to the next and we realized, oh, this is something for everybody. We really need to open this up and broaden it. Love it. Are they, are you guys on the bullpen? Yeah. Yeah. So yep. on the bullpen, uh, we're going to have the recording up from. Yeah. We'll have the recording up, uh, by the time this episode goes out, the recordings from, uh, Energy Techland last night are going to be live hmm. and Josh absolutely killed it with the presentation we got Thank tons you. of great feedback uh the whole crowd was laughing you had a lot of interaction so you killed it there so go and watch that i mean that was a fantastic presentation yeah that way you can get a visual of yeah i mean it's super i mean here. super super cool technology so i'm so Thank excited it's, it's like cia it's so levels like tracking phones and using satellites <laughs> and pinging off metal yeah. to see what equipment's on location yeah, like, uh, when the one guy was and like how just, do we make sure that we're not tracked you know just, and i'm like <laughs> Don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah, just (laughs) smash your iPhone. Just just me down on location, swinging a hammer, like motherfuckers watching me up there. (laughs) Right? It's uh, you know, that's it's the benefits. The the benefits have costs, not really costs. But it's like that's right. But I was like, you know, it's well, you know, the Jason Bourne movies. You know how like there's always a scene in every thriller movie where somebody takes out their phone, pulls out the little SIM card, and stomps on it with their boot and throws it in trash. That's how you don't get tracked. (laughs) Just can't have any electronics in your body. I love episodes like this especially right now you know coming out of 2020 all the doom and gloom and i just love doing the follow-up episodes mm-hmm. years later and seeing how you guys have pivoted and how you've evolved uh and you, how you guys are growing and i just think it's absolutely fascinating what you guys do it's really really cool technology yeah thanks guys i mean i'm glad to see that you guys are doing great too i mean last year was um uh, and and you know like i said last night i mean especially last year when everybody's home and not seeing each other it was great to have you guys, the digital wildcatters, really kind of keeping the community together online. Like that's a real thing. Man, thanks. You know? That appreciate that means that. a lot. I told someone yeah. that yesterday at Energy Tech Night that the best comments that I got were from people that said, hey, in 2020 when we're locked down, just the uh, content, bringing the community together meant a lot. So thanks for that. Yeah. No, it really was, especially, you know, people, most people are like me, staying at home, you know, with yeah. their family, not seeing other people, but like yeah. feeling like, oh, there's other people out there. Those are the same situation, but doing stuff like, yeah, we're, we're going to come back to this. We're going to see each yeah. other again, we're gonna you know, back for sure. Man. Um, and that's and and you guys have really, I think, emerged as I, I mean, I don't think there's anything else like it in kind of upstream energy industry. There really isn't in yeah. terms of something that that pulls the community together the way that you guys have done. And yeah. we've really we really like even when talking to people externally, it's like. Are we a media company? Yes, but more so, I think it's we're a community-based company, community-centric company. Because mm. like without guys like you and without everybody that was in the room last night, at Energy Tech Night, it would just be up there with nobody. You know, yeah. it's it's all about the community. That is, uh, you know, what we create content around, um, and it's turned into you know it was started off as two guys in a closet. Just shooting yeah, a podcast. Yeah, that's a show where, uh, yeah, we had no windows in town at all. I love talking. So, you know, it started out as a hustle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a hustle that made no money. We lost a lot of money on it, but <laughs> it turned into like this movement. And I think everybody mm. really embraced that. I tried to kind of embody that with kind of the opening monologue last night of like, this is the, about the Wolf of Wall know, Street. Yeah, the Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. Shit. Uh, so, you know, getting getting everybody kind of in on that and, and, and kind of just, you know, everybody's saying that, you know, we're sick of the status quo. 
things in the industry are broken. I think we have to recognize. It's like we that. got cool stuff like this, man. Like we yeah. got cool stuff like source water out there. So mm. let's start using it and embracing it. So if you guys like today's episode, if you like source water, you want to check out source water. What's the website? Is it source water? It's sourcewater.com. Just com. like it sounds. Easy enough. Easy um, enough. Sourcewater.com. Josh at sourcewater.com. We're easy. There you go. So we'll leave links in the uh, description so that you can reach out to them. Josh, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for doing Energy Tech Night last night. Super excited about all of this, man. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate you yeah. having me out here today and, and last night. Absolutely, Ben. You going to do your outro? Uh, you mean you kind of hit on it. Hey, hey share the episode. <laughs> uh, go and watch the Energy Tech Night videos if you guys haven't seen that yet. I want you to see what you uh, definitely missed out on. Everybody's <laughs> everybody's having FOMO. Uh, we jam-packed the house. And everybody's asking when the next event is. We don't know yet. Uh, but there's going to be at least one more Energy Tech Night in 2021, along with a bunch of other events that we're going to do. But we're actually going to be sitting down um, and planning out an event calendar for all of 2022. And so the cool thing is we're not just going to be doing it in Houston. We're going to Midland. We're going to Oklahoma. We're going to Louisiana. We're going to New Mexico. We're going to Colorado. If the borders open up, we're going to Calgary. So we're going to be doing events everywhere. Uh, and we're also going to start live streaming uh, all of these events as well so that we can kind of have a much larger TAM. And that was kind of topical with the, with the conversation today. So if you're not in one of these cities, you can actually just come in and, and watch and participate in the, in the conversation and join the community. So uh, really looking forward to, to seeing you guys at the next event. And thanks to everybody who came out last night. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, without you guys, we couldn't do any of this. So we appreciate it. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, come, come.